Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where myself and my colleagues look at the technology driving the energy transition. I'm Peter White, and as usual, I'm joined by Harry Morgan. Hello. Harry covers uh, wind and hydrogen. Solar specialist, Andrees Wontenar. Hello there. Hi, Andrees. And our publisher, Simon Thompson. Good day. On the show today, we'll be discussing our quarterly tracking service for wind turbines, which shows additions pretty close to the record, despite strong supply chain challenges. We look at a small German company and how everyone seems very happy to concede that it's a breakthrough in using uh, sulphur as a cathode for lithium-ion batteries, which seems to be a revolution. And we look at First Solar's attempt to make a tandem solar panel, merging the benefits of silicon with cadmium telluride. And this panel should capture more energy than any previous off-the-shelf solar panel. So we're going to kick off um, with our wind count, Harry. So where, where are we on wind? Yeah, so for 2021, all the figures are out now. Um, and we can see that there's been around 92.5 gigawatts of global wind power additions through 2021. That figure, it, it depends on who you're taking the previous year's figures off. We actually count that as a decrease compared to 2020, uh, 2020 largely due to a dip in onshore additions from China. But 92.5 gigawatts is still a fantastic year for the wind industry. It's up it was the second highest year on record and it's actually around six seven gigawatts higher than we actually expected based on the supply chain constraints that we we thought would be um affecting uh, the total manufacturers throughout the year and affecting developers throughout the year as our count is a 25 percent dip compared to 2020 but if you're looking at the general growth of the wind industry that's that's pretty good if we're looking at the wind industry w- weren't those numbers a little suspect um uh, from from 2020 yeah so they're suspect from 2020, as I suppose they're slightly suspect from 2021 as well. The big chunk of the figures and what and a large amount of the discrepancy, if you're looking at other tracking services, is how people count uh, additions in China. So last year, China reported a huge amount of offshore wind um, in quarter four ahead of its feed-in tariff deadline. Um, so and we have taken it as that is when that capacity wasn't installed. A lot of that may have been partially installed and actually completed in the sort of months following but we've we've put that sort of solid end date when china actually reported it we've done that again this year with offshore wind so offshore wind in china was actually a large result of the a large sort of driving force behind the rate of installations we've seen china actually china, how, how much offshore wind did china add then this year china um added something like 16 17 gigawatts of offshore wind in total uh bringing itself to 27 gigawatts um across the country that capacity is more than was has been installed across the world combined outside of china over the past five years it brings china to be the world's largest market for offshore wind by uh, more than double um, given the fact that it, which is incredible considering it only overtook the uk in terms of capacity this year uh, and offshore wind sort of accounts for around uh, just over a third of the country's new capacity so it's, it's a huge shift towards offshore wind but so that is 16 or 17 gigawatts I've just been flicking through Goldwind's uh, investment numbers and over 15 gigawatts of that was Goldwind. Yeah, so Goldwind had a huge year in China and obviously Goldwind is, is a massive leader of um, offshore wind in China. Uh, it's probably the second largest OEM in the world in terms of installations just behind Vestas. Uh, Goldwind also does have projects occurring outside of China. So in terms of onshore installations, it, it has got a large thing in the pine Vietnam. So Vietnam actually became the third largest market for wind power globally this year, which is pretty staggering considering um, how much of an emerging market it is. It brought on land 3.6 gigawatts of onshore wind. Um, so it was only really surpassed by the US and China. 
<clears throat> there's a bit of mystery around China's figures, although we could actually pull it apart sometime by looking at the manufacturing and the imports and exports. But what's the story in, in the West where the figures are probably more consistent? Uh, so the figure in the West, obviously, is it's been a year of supply chain constraints. If you're looking at Europe in particular, it's been a dreadful year for wind. Um, only two markets in, in Europe have actually seen an increase in annual additions. Um, this is still largely sort of a hang on from an era, an, era, an era of, sort of nimbyism. So people not wanting wind turbines in their backyard, sort of lingering around 2015, 2016, where a lot of restrictions were put in place around the planning of wind, uh, wind power projects. We're starting to see those lifted now. So we can imagine that these markets will start to open up again. Uh, next year, the year after, obviously, the wind, uh, onshore wind projects have a lead time of about two, three years. Um, but that's, that's assuming all the planning is already in the bag. Yeah, and there's a, but there are a lot of these projects that are already sort of shovel ready, so they've been sort of on the back burner for years, ready to go, and just waiting for sort of the go ahead in terms of planning restriction, uh, in terms of planning permission. And once those um, can start getting underway, that'd be huge. That's especially the case in places like Germany, where they're now starting to increase the funding for community renewable energy projects they're starting to reduce the distance that uh, wind turbines can be from homes the uk are looking at doing very similar things in their uh, new energy strategy and uh, that that should really sort of boost the european uh, wind turbine market i think companies like siemens gamisa investors will be looking to sort of re-establish manufacturing facilities in i'm just Europe. i'm just going to throw something else out there from uh, looking at gold winds numbers uh, last year eight percent of its uh, capacity build out in um, turbines was outside of China. This year it's 26%. Suddenly, Goldwind is going international and going global. It, it mentions Vietnam, but it also mentions Pakistan, Middle East, South America, a large installation in Australia, and even one or two installations in the US. So, all of that in the space of a year, virtually. Um, so it's just I'm just saying this is doing to the wind industry what China did to the solar industry. Yes, absolutely. And I think that really hasn't been helped by the fact that we've seen a lot of failures in General Electric machines. General Electric had had a terrible year for wind this year um, and fell from the second, I fell from being the top spot in terms of installations in 2020 down to being fifth this year. If you're looking Why did at so many people order them, sorry. Why did so many people order them? I mean, if they weren't properly tested, are these the very large ones, the 12 um, megawatt ones? I think, yeah, these, are, uh, these aren't necessarily the 12 megawatt ones, ones that are failing. It's generally their onshore ones, and there have been several instances of... Um, I think the Texas freeze-out was a particular, particularly damaging for them in terms of actually seeing those turbines fail and seeing them not weatherized. I think people probably put certain deliveries on ice, um, if you pardon the pun, um, over that period. And um, I think that probably has damaged them. They, their installations in the home market of the US actually fell 22% 22, 22 um, from 2020 to 20, 2021. And yeah, as you said, Peter, the, the rise of Chinese OEMs as they can sort of match the quality or the perceived quality of these units is really increasing their ability to penetrate these new markets. They're also being, being able to penetrate markets that Western OEMs don't necessarily have that much of a relationship with. So places like Vietnam, and it's now at the point where six of the largest 10 wind turbine suppliers are now based in China. So really, it's only Vesta, Siemens Gamesa, General Electric um, and Nordex that actually are still in the game. So it's been a huge amount of consolidation within the Western turbine makers. And I imagine that we'll see that continue. OK, I mean, that's it's got to they've got to consolidate because I mean, the trouble is their commercial operations 
They don't have any connections to uh, a state as the Chinese may have um, that can um, always help fund them um, or fund R&D. They, uh, Vestas, Simskamisa, um, I mean, it's the same as if you go through um, the, the, the mobile phone industry, for instance. You know, Nokia was the world number one, uh, never going to be assailed, always going to be fine. S- really, effectively, a Finland company, Finland Inc. And then suddenly, Chinese manufacturing, whether it was through Apple's or uh, Samsung's or uh, any other design of phone, uh, and eventually the Nordic country fell and dropped right out of making phones. I mean, uh, that's going to be the worry for something like Vestas. It's got to stay ahead of the game and it's got to keep China out of the rest of the world. If China replaces Belt and Road with a kind of green Belt and Road and takes wind turbines to Africa, it will win all of them. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So if you're looking at the cost of the, the Chinese turbines compared to the um, the Western turbines, it's almost half in terms of the, the capex cost, which which is a huge thing. And, and that's partially because China, it was actually quite smart in what it did with the feed-in tariffs. So obviously China phased out the feed-in tariffs last year, which saw a huge rush um, to grow production capacity within its domestic turbine makers, because obviously it will only support those. So it's built out this huge amount of production capacity, which suddenly... It's not necessarily uh, facilitating in terms of projects in China. So, but now these turbine makers operating at such a low cost have really opened out to their opportunities outside of China. Um, I imagine we'll see them start to do the same in the offshore wind market with feed-in tariffs ending at the end of 2021. And especially now that we're seeing a lot of these uh, Chinese turbine makers announcing um, sort of 10 megawatt, 12 megawatt turbine units to compete with the offshore wind turbine uh, units of General Electric, Sims Commission, Vestas. So. I think it's it'll be a worrying time if you're a Western turbine maker. Uh, I think the only way that this can really be uh, resolved from the West perspective is if they put, rather than putting sanctions on the cheap turbines coming from China, they need to be um, putting incentives in to buy local turbines. Well, not to buying them, just fund R&D. Exactly. I mean, that, uh, yeah, that's what China does. I mean, it's just fun, fun, European incentives to fund R&D. Um, we'll see how that develops. Second story we're looking at this week is I had to sit and watch as everybody in the world wrote up this German battery startup, Theon. Yes, they'd been in play for a while. They'd been talking about coming to market for about 18 months. Um, but what happened is they got a new CEO, Dr. Ulrich Ames, and uh, Ames decided that he would um, tell everyone how wonderful his technology was and uh, and just um, addressed it in an interview. But um, it, it is pretty wonderful stuff, if it's true. So they're talking about um, a 1,000 watt-hours per kilogram of uh, gravimetric energy density, and they're talking uh, about a, a huge increase in volumetric energy density as well, um, fifteen hundred watt hours per liter. So, and they're talking about this happening with a sulfur uh, cathode. This is, is not a sulfur cathode that will just clam up after a few charges. It will do a thousand recharges in a battery's lifetime. Now that it turns out has been, is not a piece of intellectual property it owns, I don't believe. Um, so I dug into it a little bit, and it seems that uh, a number of universities, um, one in particular in uh, Philadelphia, 
the Drexel University College of Engineering, um, has published a, a kind of breakthrough paper in about August time, which was effectively uh, an accidental breakthrough where they put carbon nanotubes for as a place for the sulphur to coalesce on and effectively um, solved a, a long-term problem in uh, in using sulphur as a cathode, which was that um, it would turn into something which reacted with the electrolyte and they um uh, and and make polysulfides which which were one one way reactions and so couldn't recharge um they the, instead the uh, presence of the carbon uh, fibers made it make a different type of uh, of sulfur uh, what's called monoclinic gamma phase sulfur i don't ask me what that really means but it doesn't react with a carbonate electrolyte. So suddenly, problem solved. In that paper, it's talking about 4,000 charge-recharge uh, charge cycles. And I think that's in the public domain now. And I think it will be absorbed into the generic lithium-ion um, culture through all the research establishments we've seen. I, I genuinely think that as much as this is a good, great breakthrough, not all of it belongs to Theon. And not all of it, and it's not enough. I, I think it's too late for the company to get in on a market which has uh, already spent $40 billion growing out um, 30-odd factories and is planning to spend another $200 billion growing out um, more factories. And unless it's just licensing those factories or or give, providing supply to those factories, it it's and it, and it isn't. It's planning to build gigafactories of its own, uh, unless they're just cathode gigafactories. Uh, it seems to be heading off in a a wrong direction. I can't see it see it changing the nature of the lithium ion market at this late stage. Uh, it doesn't mean that it won't, but um, I just can't see how all that money can be diverted and headed off in another direction. So the the thing about it is, it is a lithium-ion battery. Uh, it's just changing the cathode from um, uh, the normal suspects, which are uh, nickel, cobalt, and um, I always forget the other one. It's manganese, I think. Um, and and so uh, and and that's the cost of the rare of uh, the rare metals. So if you can get over the the problem, the sulfur um, carries more charge. Um, so it's still a lithium-ion battery, it's still, but the sulfur uh, carries will attract more charge, and as a result, you can get twice as much, uh, about twice as much um, electrical output. They're, they're, they're hinting at, at this being three or four times the amount of car range, because you're affecting the the weight that you can carry and the volumetric space you can fit it in, all at the same time. So it, it's either you can have the same range on a much smaller battery, or you can have um, uh, the same size battery with a range of about 900 miles is the idea. But it, what seems strange is the idea that they're, they're going to take this invention, build factories, first for um, things like mobile phones uh, and then for um, other uh, vehicles, uh, initially for, the, for, for um, space. And then finally, in 2024, hit the electric vehicle market. Just seems we're we going to give everybody a two-year warning that we're coming into this market. It just seems unlikely that that's going to materialise and that those road road markings are going to be um, 
stuck to, especially when you realise that the, um, the the kind of density of batteries right now is shifting from the 260, which Tesla's shipping right now, which is megawatt hours per kilogram, up to about 380 with its um, 4680 design, and will shift on to about 500 when QuantumScape um, has its battery in, uh, uh, um, factory in full flow in about 2024. So we've already got these kinds of numbers. Uh, yes, there might be some inherent advantage in using sulfur as a um, as a cathode. It, it's going to take, I think, a lot longer. I think it'll be more like 2026, 7, where people start introducing that into the top of their line. And I think it won't, I think everyone will go into it. I don't think there's enough barriers in the way to make Theon the owner of this technology, even though it's got a number of patents. I think what Theon is actually doing is highlighting that it's in the race in order to get more funding, because I don't think it has enough. Ains are, are, are kind of has done this before in bigger com- companies. I think he worked at the Clunch before. So he's going to be able to use his name and these claims to get more money behind his startup, basically. But I, I see it ended up being acquired down the road by one of the big Chinese or, or Korean players. And, and I'm not, I wasn't quite as buzzed by it as everybody else who just took the press release and ran with it which we have seen before. Okay, so this other thing that you've done, Andres... Yeah, that's probably the opposite. For solar, yeah, Yeah. I think think the idea of doing a tandem with cadmium telluride, that's... that's, uh, and and silicon, seems really quite interesting. Yeah, in fact, now that I think about it, I probably should have written the headline in, in all caps, and I instead of saying, some power and first solar working towards SI CDT tandem, I should have said, the world's first tandem solar panel commercially available in just 18 months or something, and got yeah. very excited and demanded that it be the first story or something. Because <laughs> the, the more I think about it, the more I think, well, this is kind of the opposite to your story, where everyone's getting too excited. This is probably not covered enough. So, yeah, uh, SunPower, which is just a residential installer, I, I believe, in, in America... So that's it, that's its role. It, a it's very really large a, residential installer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but even so, it, it's not like I don't, I don't think it develops cell technology, for example. Um, no, that doesn't. So, so its role is more, you know, on the deployment side. Uh, so it's really about first solar, which is obviously that's the utility scale centric and also commercial and industrial actually in the, in the past few years. Uh, cadmium telluride solar manufacturer, I believe it has a development arm, may have sold it. A little bit of context about the whole tandem thing. Actually, no, 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 I'll just start, I'll start by saying what they're doing. So in SunPower's Analyst Day presentation at the end of March, they say we're working on a tandem solar module which will be ready in 24 months that will use cadmium telluride and silicon. So this is, and, and the SunPower CEO says this is going to be the world's uh, most advanced residential solar panel. And I think it's not just that, it's actually just going to be the most advanced solar panel in general yet seen that, that hits the market. Because well, I'm, I'm going to argue something different from that in just a moment. In fact, I'm going to argue that this is SunPower looking at the state of um, uh, polysilicon and the uncertainty in its supply lines and saying, wouldn't it be lovely if we could use an American manufacturer, First Solar, who's not beholden to polysilicon? And then knocking on the door and saying to um, uh, First Solar, Listen, if if you were to make 
a four-terminal tandem, we'd buy all of it. And, we, and we'll back you and give you some money up front to make to take the sting out of developing such a device. And then they've gone, oh, that's, that's all we needed. We were waiting for someone to come along and say that. Thank you very much. And so they're now responding. They'll be able to maintain their position supplying the rooftop market at a price no one else can touch, at a performance level no one else can touch. Because previously, First Solar's delivering about 18% efficiency in its modules, and they're not suitable, really, for the rooftop market. This is going to produce 25% efficiency, very suitable for the rooftop market. So I suspect it's that way around, and that's why SunPower's CEO got to announce it rather than the First Solar CEO. Ah, so when I was thinking about the technology and say, oh, Sun Palace just an install, actually it is the active force here in terms of the finance. I'm guessing that, but I, so that's what I figured. You know, because it, it, it's got to buy its modules from somewhere. It will be looking at its order flow for the next two years and looking at the price it's at uh, vis-a-vis polysilicon and other, uh, other problems and say, well, how can we solve this? And they knock on the door of First Solar and say, how can we solve this? And they, well, have we got a plan for you? And we'll double our own revenue as well. I mean, it makes so much sense. And there's there's an irony here, which is that we've always talked about Tandem as being about perovskites primarily. And then we also said, well, yeah, you can do it with the other thin film stuff. And we even said uh, First Solar could be one of the first Tandem people, but using cadmium telluride with perovskites. And... In the retrospect, <laughs> it's kind of obvious that it would just be the existing two, the two technologies. The, yeah, the two technologies that we already know how to yeah. do. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, but I guess, you know, a year or two ago, we were still thinking that Perovskite would get over these hurdles in fairly short order. I've got, with, a, I've um, got a question for you. Yeah, a question yeah. For, how much capacity are they going to make? How much capacity? Well... You know, that's the issue. The issue. And, and, and I think you said that it's going to be 25% efficiency. And that's a pretty... Damn great figure. That is just my guess. Oh, okay. But 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 theoretically it could go onwards and upwards to thirty eight percent, which we the kind of number we've heard before in tandems from Oxford P V when it was going to do silicon and perovskite. So we know that that this is a line of research that multiple people can follow. Um all we know we know now is instead of doing it as a heterojunction as a two terminal system, just put one on top of the other and collect the electricity at the other end and homogenise it after that yeah. with a four-terminal system. It's simpler. It's a simpler place to get to. So how big could it be? Well, I think they, I think probably that it's just a complex thing at the module level in terms of the cadmium telluride and the silicon. Already, it already exists. So they so should be should, able to scale it up. They should be able to scale it up. And, and is it exclusive to SunPower? It should be gigawatts. Um, it, that, and that's a question we need to ask somehow. Well, I think this particular deal is exclusive. No, no, but I mean, it, it, if First Solar can make this stuff, why well, wouldn't it sell it to everyone in America and elsewhere? And then I'm going to throw another one at you. Do you remember Kalux? We keep coming back to Kalux. Yeah. Doing the same thing with silicon and perovskite. Oh, yeah, and you told me that was a what, what I call very crudely a, a module-level tandem instead of a cell-level tandem, which I'm but, sure yeah, is Yeah, they call correct. it a four-terminal version. Yeah, four-terminal, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so... So that targets 27.5% efficiency and will be coming out at the same time as these. Now, it is a small company, but 2.5% efficiency gain over and above a record-breaking um, arrival would, would be amazing. Now, I'm not... You know, K- 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 not just perovskite and silicon, right? Yeah. 
I think I might be it might be true of perovskites as well, but I think cadmium telluride's nameplate efficiency ratings understate the real generation um, because I think the test conditions are a little bit unfavorable. At least that's what the cadmium telluride people say. <laughs> uh, and to be fair, they do first seller does very well in the market, which I don't think it would if its nameplate efficiency was as low as it appears to be. You know, I'm going to say here and now on the podcast for anybody who has heard from. Oxford PV about how they're going to get their act together and, and make a comeback before they run out of money. Can you please get in touch and tell us? Because we'd like to share it. Yeah, I mentioned them, didn't I? Um, like they've, I, I looked on their website and they haven't really announced anything since July when the Maya Berger divorce happened. And they were trying for something much more uh, powerful and advanced with the, uh, the full integration of the, of the tandem. Uh, between the two semiconductors, and then Maya and they Berger. may not be—they may be changing strategy. You see, when something like this happens, they'll respond to it. I bet you, within three months, they announce a four-terminal system that's available. Uh, I bet you—bet that's what happens because that's where they have to go. They've got to cover these moves. A, a couple of years, well, a year ago, or perhaps two years ago, this kind of simpler tandem approach was not as—it wasn't talked about as much. People were gunning for the more advanced version. Um, but it seems like the more advanced stuff has just fallen into technical challenges that just haven't been cleared yet, and they don't know when they will be. So, yeah, yeah, yeah um, I th- and I think that is the, the but, but it's not just the technical challenges; it's the political challenge. Um, the reason Mayor Berger fell out with Oxford PV is because it wanted to stop making the equipment to make heterojunction uh, because eighty percent of its customers were in China and it didn't feel safe. So it wanted to instead make make its own heterojunction um, uh, PV. Great. So it's a lack of people with manufacturing capacity to make heterojunction, to make a two-terminal system that has confounded Oxford PV. It must come up with a new strategy and it must come up with it soon. Otherwise, all its investor capital will be wasted. I think we're going to see more announcements like this. I think this is um, th- this will have a, a short life, but I think a very effective one in the American rooftop market. Okay, so we've got these stories. We usually ask Simon if he's got a contribution to make, something that he finds interesting um, um, f- from the issue. Yes, Peter, I was flicking through the worth noting section, the world of renewables um, at rethinkresearch.biz slash energy. And I came across this, uh, I was amazed to find this this piece about a flame on board a liquefied hydrogen ship. And it just sparks, ha-ha, um, it, it sparks concerns about hydrogen safety. Yeah, so I think it's actually really important to address this because I think it's this kind of thing that people could latch on as a potential Hindenburg reason not to um, exactly not to invest in hydrogen. Um, so the story refers to um, the Suiso Frontier ship, which was intended to, and actually did, it delivered um, it's liquefied hydrogen between uh, Australia and Japan back in uh, January and February. Uh, first ever ship to do so, first ever real demonstration of liquefied hydrogen being distributed from country to country. Unfortunately, it was brown hydrogen produced through coal but i think looking at this project from a commercial sense we need to look at it is the ability to transport green hydrogen across the world but that's sort of by the by that's this the story really is that there was a reports of a a fire or what was called a serious incident on the ship 
um, before it uh, actually took off, basically, from Australia. Uh, a flame was seen coming from the uh, gas combustion units exhaust on deck. So, obviously, with the concerns about hydrogen, how flammable it is, that is something that is a cause for concern. Um, it's worth noting that the, the fire and the unit causing the fire was immediately shut down, isolated, crew was removed, no injuries, no damage, no pollution, really. And so, as... An incident goes, there was actually very little consequence. Um, there is going to be a, a formal investigation by the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, and that I imagine will come up with um, measures that need to be taken to stop um, such incidents happening again. The interesting it'll be thing, blamed on the uh, it'll bl- be blamed on green activists, I'm sure, given Australia's government uh, style. <laughs> exactly. What um, should be taken from this is that. Incidents happened, as they do on oil and gas ship uh, transportation vessels every day, uh, and it was shut down. Uh, Nothing of any consequence really happened, um, apart from minor delays to to the onboard procedures, and the ship managed to to transport the liquid hydrogen as as it intended. So I think it, it should show really that this, rather than showing that there is this risk behind green hydrogen, it shows that we are actually in a position uh, in terms of the infrastructure and the technology we have uh, to distribute it. Um, liquid hydrogen, obviously, there's an ongoing debate whether or not liquid hydrogen is going to be used rather than ammonia in terms of shipping hydrogen around the world. And obviously, that's dependent on how economically you can reach the, the temperatures of minus 250 degree, uh, 253 degrees Celsius required to actually make liquid hydrogen out of normal gaseous hydrogen. Um, but I think we are at a stage now where this distribution of hydrogen and the trade of hydrogen is going to start becoming commercialised and hydrogen very much is going to become commoditised within the energy system. If you look at it, if if Australia or a particular company in Australia manages to get a head start and manages to do it economically, uh, which, I mean, I must say, I've seen five or six arguments which go into a lot of detail which show which seem to show that it can't be done economically because of the amount of energy involved, that that's a secret that they would really you know that's a head start that they could really um turn into uh control of that industry um, and i imagine there's a lot of vested interests uh under uh in here not just the fossil fuel groupings not just the um the green groupings that want to provide the solar to make the hydrogen but quite a, but people that in the shipping markets people in the in the liquid uh, natural gas markets who really want this to fail i wouldn't be surprised if there were some kind of shenanigans uh, around this story whether it was made up or <laughs> whether a fire was placed there just to try and stop the uh, the journey or whether uh, or or what but that, it seems to me uh, too much of a coincidence to be um, to be that a coincidence. Billions of dollars uh, in being involved is usually a good reason for someone to step in. Anyway, that's that's um, we keep our eye on that. And Harry, maybe you'll look into. In fact, how would you set on fire liqu- liquefied hydrogen? It'd be very difficult, I'm sure. And perhaps you could um, do a bit of research over the next few issues and see if you can uh, find an expert because there will be some already on um, the safety requirements of liquefied hydrogen yeah i think it probably is worth addressing it's the kind of thing where um while it's widely accepted widely accepted sort of within the industry that hydrogen is going to be safe and that it is safe it's the kind of thing that 
and we don't put that much attention into publicising why it's safe and the issue, I think it is important to understand and, and to demonstrate why um, and how we're safe. Do, do you remember we've spoken to a company involved in hydrogen and we said, oh, how many of your investors raised the issue of safety? And they said, all of them. <laughs> you know, and, and obviously it's something that every company in hydrogen has to address. Okay, so these stories, all the other stories from the issue, and all of our research is available on the website. You go to rethinkresearch.biz, you click the energy button, and um, if you want to buy our research, you click forecast and data. If you want to read the issue, click weekly analysis, and um, there are podcasts and webinars there as well. So uh, that's the end of this podcast for this week, and um, we'll, we'll be back next week with another.